Good afternoon and welcome to this gathering of Covenant Hope Church. My name is Mark Donald. I have the privilege of serving this church as one of the elders. And today we'll be concluding our series in the book of Titus. So if you will, turn with me to Titus chapter 3. The uh, series in Titus is not the only thing that we'll be concluding this week. This week is actually the last week for our pastoral internship for this year, this batch. The four brothers, uh, Bussant uh, and Costa and Francis and uh, Bishwa, there you are, uh, these brothers have been with us for the last 10 months. They've been here taking time to reflect and think about pastoral ministry, to take time to really think about and wrestle with some ideas about what it means to be a church. What does the Bible teach about the church? What does the Bible teach about what is a a church and what is a healthy church and how to lead a church and how to preach faithful gospel-centered sermons and many, many things they've been reflecting on over these last 10 months that they've been here. It's been a great joy to have you, brothers. So thankful for your hard work in reading books and writing papers and reflecting uh, through, through these last few months. It's such a wonderful privilege to host these brothers and to be able to have this partnership with people in uh, churches in Zambia and India and Nepal and to try and see the gospel go forth, not just here in the UAE, not just here in Dubai, in Covenant Hope Church, but around the world. And the topic that these brothers have been reflecting on about what a healthy church is and what a healthy church should look like um, really is the focus of this little letter that we've been reading over the last few months, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his young apprentice, Titus. And so, Paul wrote this letter to this younger man in ministry, this younger guy who was just starting out in ministry or Uh, at least compared to where Paul was, he's writing him to encourage him. And so we're going to be concluding, as I said, with Titus chapter 3. We'll be looking uh, primarily at verses 8 through 15. So if you haven't, please turn with me there in your Bibles. As I mentioned, Paul wrote this as a personal letter to his apprentice Titus, this young leader that he had left behind on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. But while this letter was personal, it serves a public function in that it it paints this picture of what a church should strive to be. So, so far, just kind of running through this little letter, so far what we've seen is that a church should aim to have multiple qualified godly leaders or elders. See that at the beginning in uh, chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. And part of the reason they need elders in the church is because they need to be beware of false teachers. We saw that in chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. They need to focus on teaching the truth. That was Paul's encouragement, his exhortation to Titus, preaching the truth and teaching what accords with sound doctrine. And to apply this truth, not just generally speaking, but to different kinds of people in the church as well. We saw that in chapter 2. And that these members are also to apply the truths of God's Word. 
So where we see in chapter 2 that older women are encouraged to, to disciple younger women in the faith and that older men are to be examples and models to younger men. And so what we see here is members discipling one another. That's another aspect of a healthy church. And that all these things are able to take place. All these things are only possible because of the gospel that powerfully saves and transforms us. That's what we've seen at the end of chapter 2 and in last week's sermon from the beginning of chapter 3. The gospel is the power not only for salvation, but also for sanctification, to change us to become holy, to become more like the Lord Jesus. And so, Paul's concern is for gospel doctrine to produce gospel living. Gospel doctrine to produce gospel living. We've seen this over and over again, even from the very first verses of the letter. In this relatively short letter, we get two of perhaps the most beautiful passages on the gospel in all of the New Testament. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 is the first one, and then in chapter 3, Michael expounded this last week, verses 3 to 7 unpack this glorious gospel that has the power for our transformation. Now, it'd be well worth you considering committing these passages, these gospel-rich passages to memory. They're so glorious. They're so beautiful. Each turn of phrase teaches us another element of the gospel, another exciting, beautiful aspect of the gospel. It's like It's like Paul is taking a diamond and turning it in the light, watching the dazzling reflection sparkle off the jewel that is the gospel and how it impacts our lives. Our passage that we'll be focused on, verses 8 to 15, that's the end of the book, it comes hot on the heels of one of these passages. And so I'm going to include it in my reading today, even though I won't be expounding that. Michael did that for us last week. If you missed it, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it, but I'm going to read it so that we have the context for our text. So, I'm going to begin in verse 3 of chapter 3. It says this, "'For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness,' and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless." As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, 
Do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Before we continue and consider these verses, let's go to the Lord together and ask for His help as we consider His Word. Heavenly Father, we long to be edified with divine truth today. Lord, would you give me aid in preaching, and would you help us to hear your word rightly? Lord, we need conviction, and we need comfort, and above all, we need to see Christ today. Help us to see Him with the eyes of faith. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Paul beautifully unfolds the wonder of the gospel. So just take a second to run your eyes over verses 3 through 7 again. First, we considered who we were. We were disobedient fools. We were slaves to sin. We were full of hate. But then, we consider what God did. That in love, mercy, and grace, God saved us. The triune God saved us. Father, Son, and Spirit. By regenerating us, that is, bringing us from being dead in our sins to being alive by the Holy Spirit, that was poured out richly on us through Jesus Christ the Son. God justified us by His grace. That means that God declares us righteous in His sight because Jesus paid for our sins in full, and Jesus offers us His perfect righteousness. His perfect record, as if we had lived a perfect life, the one that He lived. And finally, because Jesus has risen in victory, we are guaranteed an inheritance, a hope of eternal life in Him. That is the gospel message. That is the good news that Christians believe. That is the message that's that's at the heart of the whole Bible storyline. It's the whole point of human history, in fact. It's the message that we as Christians stake our eternal lives on, that God saved us from our sins by His grace through faith in what the Lord Jesus has done for us, in His death on our behalf and His resurrection in victory over sin and death. If you're here and you are not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then above anything else that I want you to think about from the sermon today is this message. You need to know that you need saving and that God saves. You need saving and God saves, and it all, all it requires is turning in faith to Him. So if you're not a Christian, if you're a visitor with us, That is all I want you to think about today and for the rest of the day, to consider why you haven't turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. But that was last week's sermon, right? That was the text from last week, verses 3 to 7. But our passage flows right out of that statement, and as Paul closes out this letter with final encouragements, he gives 
two major encouragements to Titus, and they revolve around something that he should insist upon and something that he should avoid. The main point of this sermon is that we should insist on gospel devotion and avoid worthless division. Insist on gospel devotion and avoid worthless division. And that's the two points that we'll consider today. Number one, insist on gospel devotion. Number two, avoid worthless division. So let's consider the first point, insist on gospel devotion. We see that primarily in verse 8, the very first verse of our sermon passage today, but we'll also see it and consider it from verses 12 to 15 uh, as well. Look back at verse 8 for a moment. Paul tells Titus what he desires for Titus's ministry, what he wishes for, what he wants from Titus, and what it is that he wishes is that Titus would insist on the gospel. He wants Titus to confidently proclaim what he just unfolded in verses 3 through 7. Now, why does he want, why does he want Titus to do this? Consider that for a second. Why does Paul insist that Titus insist on the gospel message? Well, the, the first thing that he tells us there at the beginning of verse 8 is that it's trustworthy. This message, this saying, this good news that you can recite in just a, f- a few minutes is trustworthy. It's true. Titus and every church leader should boldly proclaim the gospel regularly, weekly, even daily to themselves because it's true. These things really took place. We have eyewitness accounts of multiple apostles, and there were also hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Jesus after He had risen from the dead. And so, these these aren't speculations. These are facts. They are trustworthy. They are true. You can take a deep dive into all of the evidence that goes to support the historicity of Jesus, His life, His ministry, His death even His resurrection. The Scriptures contain four gospel accounts or four different narratives that share the message about how Jesus came, what He did, how He lived, what He taught, how He died, and how He rose again. We have those in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can do a deep dive into the evidence of the reliability of the Scriptures, why we can trust them, and you can even do a deep dive into the fact of the resurrection. If that's something that interests you, if you've always wondered if you can really trust the Scriptures, if you can really trust the Bible, come and find me after the service. I'd love to point you to some resources with excellent scholarship that will encourage your faith and build it up, or perhaps persuade you for the very first time. Come and talk to me after the service. But the gospel being true is not the only reason Paul wants him to insist upon it. We see the ultimate reason that Paul wants Titus to insist on the gospel, and it's indicated there in verse 8 by the words, so that. Paul gives a purpose. He gives a, a, a result of insisting on the gospel message, and that is it produces something. But before we consider what the gospel produces, what it does, 
It's, it's first important to note who Paul tells Titus to stress the gospel to, or who to insist it to. The answer to that might surprise you. Look at verse 8. We might be tempted to think that preaching the gospel is firstly for the sake of unbelievers, so that they'd hear the good news, and that, Lord willing, they would repent of their sins and trust in Christ and be saved and join our family as Christians in the family of faith. And of course, we, we want that. We pray for that regularly. We seek to do that with our lives, to share the good news with unbelievers. But look at what Paul says is the reason why Titus should insist upon the gospel. He says, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God. So, so Titus is to emphasize, he's to, he's to stress and insist upon the gospel for believers, those who have already put their faith in God those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus. Now, we here at Covenant Hope, we aim to preach the gospel every single week, and it's, it's true no matter what part of the Bible we're in, whether we're in the Old Testament or the New, we want to preach about the Lord Jesus. We want to preach about His life, His perfect life, His death, and His resurrection from the dead. But it's not just for non-Christians who attend that we want to direct ourselves from whatever passage of Scripture we are to the cross and to the empty tomb. No, no. We want to do it for us, those of us who have already believed. The reason we do this is because the gospel is like air for Christians. We desperately need it to live. When we're starved of it, we'll become sluggish, we'll become weak, we'll become sleepy Christians. But when we fill our lungs with the gospel, we're able to press on. We're able to push on harder. We're able to bear more fruit. We become more devoted to doing good works. So let me encourage you to not tire of hearing the good news of the gospel. Maybe you've been a Christian for many, many years and you've heard it thousands of times. Don't grow tired of hearing it once again. Listen attentively when the preacher unpacks what the good news is about what God has done for us in Christ, how He saved us, as I just did just a few moments ago at the beginning of my sermon. Don't tune out and think that this is the part of the sermon for the guests and the visitors and the non-Christians. No, consider what aspect of the gospel is being highlighted and allow it to wash over you and to affect you. And Paul gives us one way that hearing the gospel and listening attentively to it should affect believers. He says that they may be careful to devote themselves to good works. This is one of the major themes of the book of Titus. The gospel truth transforms us. It's as Michael said last week, we aren't saved because of our good works, but we are saved for good works. When we hear the message of salvation, it, it primes the pump for good works in our lives, for us to live holy lives, to live blameless lives and godly lives. The gospel causes Christians to be careful to devote themselves to good works. 
And these good works are the kinds of things we saw in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 that, that basically boil down to being a model Christian, to having good behavior, to, be, to being a good citizen, to being a good neighbor, to being a good husband or father, to being a good employee. Or another good summary in the book of Titus to consider is the good works that it might produce is the character qualities that an elder must be found to have in chapter 1. The gospel produces that in us too. Not just pastors, every Christian. Those are the things all believers should be devoted to. And that phrase, to be devoted to something, it can take on an, a, a technical sense of a practice, of a profession, like a job like a career. To be devoted to something can be like it's your job. So, good works should be what we busy ourselves with, like a career, like a job. Now, that doesn't mean that we all quit our day jobs and become professional Christians going around doing good deeds. No, because remember the instructions in chapter 2 were to all kinds of people in all kinds of positions and all kinds of spheres of life and society. Doing good should flow from from us no matter who we are or what we do, whether we're a stay-at-home mom or a senior executive in a business, whether we're a student in school or we're a teacher in school or a principal. Because the gospel should be, uh, should, because of the gospel, we should be careful to devote ourselves to doing good, to being self-controlled, to being reverent in our behavior to helping other people follow Jesus better, to working hard in whatever role God has assigned us, to being respectful towards others, to being courteous to everyone. Now ask yourself, is that what describes you? Are you careful to devote yourself to doing good? And if not, ask yourself, why not? Why is that not something that you focus on, laser focus on doing good to others, to caring for others? Even ask the Lord to help you to see how the gospel produces those fruits in you, and ask the Lord to do that, to give you those good works to walk in. Consider which aspects of the gospel you're not trusting in, or relying upon, or believing. Now, on the other hand, I, I don't want this to be too discouraging because I see lots of evidences of God's grace at work in our church. I see members serving one another in love, see them bearing one another's burdens and sorrows mercifully, compassionately, see them praying for one another fervently, see them sharing their homes and their lives with one another, being kind, being hospitable, being courteous. And so, praise God for that. We must praise God for these fruits and evidences in our church. This is the, the fruit that's produced by the gospel at work, taking root in the soil of our hearts. May we be careful more and more to devote ourselves to doing good and not grow weary in doing good. That's the other danger is to grow weary. But the gospel puts wind in our sails. It pushes us forward into greater goodness. Verse 8 concludes that these things, good works that are grounded in our salvation, these are excellent. They're profitable for everyone. It, it blesses our families. It blesses our church. It blesses our colleagues. It blesses our neighbors. It blesses our city. It blesses our leaders when we devote ourselves to doing what's right, to being good. 
But we see further gospel devotion in the concluding verses in 12 through 15. So jump down with me to 12 and following. Paul gives some final personal instructions to Titus as he makes plans. But in these verses, we see the example that Paul sets of his own devotion to doing good, his own devotion to the Lord. Paul's devotion to the gospel resulted in gospel partnerships. The first thing he says is he's sending Titus support. Ministry in Crete must have been quite difficult. One man on an island, multiple cities, town to town going and and trying to establish churches, set up healthy churches there. He needed to find faithful men who could shepherd those those, uh, churches, and so he had to take time to deeply invest in others and try to help them grow, pray for them, uh, watch their lives, encourage them. But not only that, he had to correct these false teachers that were about, that we heard about in chapter 1. And so, Paul decides that Titus really needs a break. He needs a pastoral retreat. And so, he's going to send Artemis or maybe Tychicus to relieve Titus so that he could come and spend the winter with Paul in Nicopolis. Now, Nicopolis was about 300 miles away. It would have taken five to ten days on a boat to get there, but it was near the coast. It would have been a milder winter there, so that was probably part of the reason that that was chosen. But the other thing is, is that Nicopolis was on the western coast of Greece, and we know that this was on the very fringe of the places that Paul had taken the gospel. And so, Paul had the desire to head even further west, to go to where Christ had not been named. He wanted to go to Spain where Jesus had not been proclaimed and the gospel had not yet gone. So, it's not unreasonable to imagine that part of the reason that he wanted Titus to come and be with him there and part of the reason he was choosing to be there was to take the gospel even further. Paul also encourages Titus to speed on Zenos and Apollos, who may have been the ones who delivered Paul's letter to Titus on Crete. Now, he's told to send them on their way and to support them with whatever they need. We don't really know anything about Zenos, the lawyer. It's not, he's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, but we do know about Apollos. We heard about him a few months ago in our series in the book of Acts. There, he's described as an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. So, he was likely a teacher of the, of the Bible and a proclaimer of the gospel. And we know from other letters in the New Testament that he had a significant ministry role in Corinth, the major city. And so, we see again these gospel partnerships that have developed between these men that Paul was in contact with and how he was strategizing about how to encourage them and bless them and move them on in ministry. Gospel devotion produces gospel partnership, and the gospel unites us with Christians, not just here in our own local church, but with Christians around the city and around the world even. And that's really been the story of Covenant Hope Church. If you've been with us for, uh, from the beginning, then you'll know that UCCD sent out men and women to plant Redeemer Church of Dubai across town in 2010. And then seven years later, Redeemer sent us out to plant Covenant Hope Church. And in the five years since we were planted, we've had the painful but wonderful privilege of sending out men to pastor churches in other places too. We sent David Lawrence up to Iraq, and we have sent John Pentecost to Turkey. 
it's not only that we've had the opportunity to send men out, we've also had the blessing of churches sending us people to support the work here, just like Carson Merkel, who serves on staff here, who was sent from Memphis to join us. And this week, we'll wrap up the internship, as I mentioned at the beginning, and we'll send Basant Costa, Francis, and Bishwa on to go back to various places to serve in various capacities. What a privilege it is to be involved in this kind of ministry, where we get to see what God's doing in different parts of the world. Let us be fervent in prayer. Let me encourage you to add these kinds of men to your prayer list, to pray for these gospel partners around the world. Pray for their ministries to flourish and for God to give them the blessing of gospel fruit. Praise God that we have these opportunities and pray for more opportunities to serve the Lord together in gospel ministry with others. Insisting on the gospel produces devotion in the lives of God's people and it it produces devotion to doing good, but it also produces, as we've seen in Paul's life, devotion to furthering the cause of Christ in churches around the world. And Paul returns to the, the theme that he has made Uh, in this section so far that he says in verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. The gospel is the message that we were all in urgent need, weren't we? We were desperate. We had sinned against a holy God and we had no way of getting out of that ourselves. We had no way to atone for our own sins, but God, by His grace and mercy, met our need through the greatest work ever committed. Jesus Christ offering Himself up in our place at the cross. This was the kind of love that marked all of Jesus' life. Jesus healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He loved the outcast. He comforted the brokenhearted, and He saved the lost. And that's, that is what motivates us to devote ourselves to doing good, and to helping those in urgent need. One of the ways that we do that is through our benevolence offering that we're going to take up later in this service. Let me encourage you, if you're able to support that, that goes towards the most urgent needs in our church, the benevolence offerings. And it's a reflection of the gospel at work in us when we support people in need. Paul concludes with an exchange of greetings. They're marked by love by faith and grace, all aspects of gospel devotion. Focusing on the gospel and good fruits is set against something in verses 9 through 11. It's set in contrast to engaging in unprofitable, worthless divisions. And that's our second point, avoid worthless divisions. We see that in verses 9 through 11. This is our final point, avoid worthless divisions. Take a moment to look back at chapter 1, verses 10 and following. It was there that we saw that one reason Paul wrote this letter was because false teachers from a group called the Circumcision Party had been upsetting whole families or households. That's unlikely to be individual households. It's more likely a reference to churches. And so, these teachers were causing divisions and frictions in local churches in each of these towns. These men 
were not devoting themselves to the gospel message that Paul and the other apostles proclaimed, but instead were devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And Paul says to avoid all of that. There in verse 9, he says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, which just means fights or divisions, and quarrels about the law. That first, uh, that first phrase, foolish controversies, the word there, controversies, means speculations. And so rather than being grounded on the trustworthy message of the gospel that Paul is to insist upon, these men were, were making all kinds of speculations about things, about their genealogy, who they were related to, about, about, who, uh, about how to interpret the old covenant law. Perhaps they were insisting on certain uh, practices that were no longer enforced for people under the new covenant. It's not really clear, but these seem to be groundless debates about matters which were at best guesses or at worst just kind of made up. Paul doesn't tell us great detail about what exactly these speculations were, but it seems clear that they were somehow rooted in the Old Testament and about being Jewish. And, and, and so, we, we don't really know exactly what it was, but whatever it was precisely, it doesn't seem to have risen to the level of heresy, to outright denial of the gospel. Otherwise, Paul would have spoken much more strongly against it like he does in the letter to the Galatian churches. But it seems that these didn't rise to the level of heresy, but Paul was still concerned about them because it did lead to pointless arguments that were bringing fractures in the church, were leading to divisions between Christians. And that Paul did take seriously. You know, not all controversies are, are foolish and worthless, but there are many that are. And so we need to be wise and we have to be able to discern what is essential to the gospel and keep that as our focus, to insist upon that while being flexible and charitable on things that are not essential to the gospel. It, it seems many of these arguments were not essential to the gospel. We've seen in the life of Jesus that he was, His ministry was marked by controversial uh, arguments, wasn't it? He was in almost constant debate with the religious leaders of His time. Paul, too, is bold enough to confront Others, when the gospel is at stake, even a fellow apostle like Peter, when he refused to eat with Gentile Christians. Paul also encouraged Titus to silence these teachers and to rebuke them sharply in chapter 1. And so, even here, he gives some instructions on how to handle a divisive person. So, not all disagreement, not all confrontation in the church is wrong, but Paul also knew how to lay down many of his own rights when it would preserve the unity of the church. He encourages the church in Rome to, to, to care for one another's consciences on matters that are not of first importance, and to work hard to pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So, how, how, do, we, how do we apply these verses here, verses 9 through 11? We have to be very careful we have to remember that just asking a question or expressing a concern, is, it's not, that's not the same as being divisive. Disagreement is not the same as divisiveness. 
In fact, even among our elders, we don't all agree on everything that, that uh, we discuss. We disagree on all sorts of things that aren't essential to the gospel, things that aren't contained in our statement of faith or in our church covenant or in our constitution. But we do, as elders, work very hard to maintain our unity despite our disagreements, despite our differences. So it's, it's possible to disagree with someone's ideas without attacking the person themselves. That takes ma maturity. It, ma it matters how you disagree with one another. So ask yourself, when you sense disagreement in your heart, do you prayerfully seek to understand where the other person or the other people are coming from? Do you assume the best of them? Do you strive to be gracious towards them, or do you speak poorly of those that you disagree with? Maybe even to others who aren't even involved in the situation, aiming to get them on your side. But the language here that Paul uses is not of honest disagreement, but it's of stirring up division. Picture a pot full of soup, and the person is stirring the pot and adding ingredients. He's adding controversy. He's adding discord. He's adding strife and arguments and quarreling and speculations about different difficult things that are not clear in Scripture. Paul says that this person is in sin. And Paul says elsewhere that there are some who have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels. There are people that love this sort of thing, fighting and arguing and, and disagreeing and quarreling. We see this all the time on, in, on the internet. We see this on Twitter every single day. In fact, some whole ministries are focused on looking for controversy, to entering into theological battles about speculative things and making confident assertions about things that just aren't clear in Scripture. And they fan the flames of division in the church. Some even think that they're more spiritual because they do this. Because they have this kind of appetite for fighting about theological differences, for controversy, for theological arguments. They think it makes them really mature. In fact, that's very immature and perhaps ungodly and sinful. Churches have sadly divided over all kinds of things which are just not about the gospel or closely connected to the gospel. Churches argue and split over things like the style of music or what instruments to have or not to have, over which programs they should have or shouldn't have, over the order of worship, over the length of the service, and the list goes on and on. I even read online that churches have argued about the length of the worship pastor's beard. And these kinds of divisions, they, 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 they've become even a joke about churches, sadly. One, one joke that, that, I, that I read online and I'd, I've heard before was about a Baptist man who was stranded alone on a desert island. And when rescuers came to save him, they found that he had built three huts. When they asked him, why do you have three huts? He said, well, that one's my house, that one's my church, and that's the church I used to go to. But he's the only member. So we see that 
even these kinds of things have become a joke about Christians. We laugh, right? We laugh. But if we're honest, we're all tempted by that to some degree. We're all tempted to quarrel and to get into arguments. But Paul says that we must avoid them at all costs. Paul's main concern is to preserve the unity of the church by focusing on what is the clearest, the gospel and its fruit, good works. That's where Titus is to focus his time, his energies, his efforts. It's what our church should be centered on. It's what it means to say we're a gospel-centered church. We want the gospel to be at the center of all that we're doing and thinking and living. So, what does that look like? What does it look like to avoid controversies and to strive to make the gospel central in our ministry? Well, one way that we do this is the very first line of our church covenant. It says that we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And so, we have to work for this kind of unity. It doesn't happen accidentally. By forbearing with one another over preferential matters like songs and style, we strive to put the greatest emphasis on the things which are most important like the gospel and good works. We do our best to be respectful when we do have disagreements with one another. We aim not to stir up division, but to stir one another up to faith and good deeds. And we pray we pray for unity. We work for unity, and we pray for unity. Is it something that you pray for regularly for the unity of our church? In your daily devotions, do you pray that we would be united just as the Lord Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are united, that we would be one just as they are one? that our church would be united despite all the many differences we have, all the many different cultures that are represented, all the different church backgrounds and traditions that we have. If you don't, let me encourage you to make this a part of your regular prayer, that we would be united in the gospel together, and that there would be no divisions among us. We want to work and pray for this kind of unity, but Paul knows that there will be times when our unity comes under attack. And so he gives Titus instructions in verses 10 and 11 how to deal with a divisive person. Someone who's contentious, someone who keeps arguing, keeps making trouble. And his steps are very simple. He says, warn him once and then twice. If he still remains divisive, have nothing more to do with him. These Instructions mirror Jesus' own commands for confronting a brother or sister in sin that's found in Matthew 18. So we speak to them. We speak to someone who's divisive, and we speak to them about how it's sinful to stir up division in the church, and we make multiple warnings to give them an opportunity to come to repentance. But if the person refuses the opportunity of forgiveness and restoration with the church, then they're to be rejected. Have nothing more to do with him, Paul says. And he says that the person is self-condemned. It's because he's brought it upon himself. There's been warning, and there's been a second warning, and he continues in his division or divisiveness. Now, if this happens, Paul says you can be sure that that person is warped. They're, they're twisted warped out of shape. Oftentimes here in the summer with the heat, plastic warps and changes shape, and it hardens into a different shape than the original shape it was meant to be. 
And sin does that to us. It twists us. And so this isn't someone who's confused or unsure about something in the church. No, they're in a settled, distorted view. And it it allows them to remain, it allows them to remain, allowing them to, sorry, to remain in this way only makes matters worse and perhaps will lead to even further division in the church. And so rather than ignoring a person like this, Paul encourages Titus to lead in confronting the sinner and to call them to repentance. And when that's ignored, it leads to removing them from the church community. As we've seen, Paul has been painting a picture of a, of a healthy church, what, what a healthy church looks like. And so here we see one final characteristic of a healthy church. Churches that are seeking to be faithful to God practice church discipline. Church discipline is often misconstrued as unloving and uncharitable, but in fact, church discipline is very loving. It's very charitable. It begins with brothers and sisters confronting one another in sin and calling them to repent. That is the most loving thing you can do to a sinner. And so it shows love for the person in sin, and we even extend multiple warnings. There's grace along the way. It's also loving not just to the sinner, but it's also loving to the church as well to keep sin like divisiveness from spreading through the congregation. It's also loving to the Lord as we are obedient to His commands and that we seek to maintain the purity and unity of His bride, the church. There will be times where we're called upon to take such steps to preserve the unity of our church. May we be bold and faithful enough to do so. So in this wonderful little letter, we see a beautiful portrait of what a church can and should be. So let me encourage you, as we conclude this series in the book of Titus, let me encourage you to turn what we've seen here into regular prayers for covenant hope, just like I mentioned earlier. Let me give you these to write down and pray for our church. Pray for God to give us more godly leaders. Pray for us to be on alert to false teachers. Pray for the regular preaching of God's Word to be faithful and fruitful. Pray for a culture of discipleship across cultures and generations. Pray for deep gospel partnerships in our city and around the world. Pray for unity among us and that we'd be courageous enough to defend it, even when that means church discipline. And above all, pray for us to keep the gospel central in our lives, and that we'd learn to devote ourselves to good works. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Heavenly Father, Give us grace to keep the gospel central in our lives and in our church. Lord, would you cause it to bear fruit in our lives, that we would be careful to devote ourselves to doing what is good. And Lord, help us 
to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. All for the glory of your name, we pray. Amen.